1: Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
2: Everything Compliance is now the award winning Everything Compliance having won the top talk show in podcasting award by w 3 This is the 100th anniversary show for Everything Compliance. In this episode, we have Jonathan Marks, Jonathan Armstrong, Matt Kelly, Jay Rosen, and Tom Fox sitting in. We have breaking news as we discuss the Elon Musk putting his Twitter bid on hold. And then we take a look at changes in compliance and business brought forward from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. All this... Shoutouts and rants and more on this episode of Everything Compliance. Hello everyone. Welcome to the award-winning Everything Compliance. And today it's even more special because it's our hundredth anniversary show. Um, on Everything Compliance, we never get to do breaking news. But the gift that keeps on giving, Gave us a gift this morning. Yes, Elon Musk made Matt Kelly's prophecy come true that he would indeed pull out of the uh, his offer or contract, I should say, to buy Twitter, although he's just, quote, on hold, end quote. So we thought we might start with a little discussion of, as Karen Woody would say, the gift that keeps on giving.
1: So, Matt, uh, I don't even know where to begin, but I'm going to ask you to begin. Well, Tom, I think that's exactly the point, because I'm pretty sure Elon Musk doesn't know where to begin either with this deal. But uh, so th- technically, what th- the news that happened is that at 5.54 a.m. Eastern time today, Friday, uh, he announced that the deal is on pause uh, while he tries to, uh, I guess, revisit with Twitter's management how many Twitter accounts are actually bots and uh, this is allegedly because two weeks ago uh reuters pointed out in a filing that twitter had made that at least five percent of uh twitter's users are in fact not actual human beings they're bots now i've never really dwelled on this but i always thought the percentage was maybe much higher um on the other hand it is not actually news that twitter has disclosed this sort of figure about bots um, it has done that in the past, and it has literally done it in the past just with this disclosure. This was out two weeks ago, and Elon, what? He woke up in the middle of the night to figure it out now. Uh, but he announced at 554 that he was putting the bid, the his bid on hold. And then he announced later on that he is still committed to the acquisition, which I guess is still on hold. Um Look, nobody knows what this means. And I think that is exactly the point here is I don't think Elon ever actually had a clear sense of what he wanted to do with uh, Twitter as a business, because he had said previously, after he announced his bid, that he hadn't really thought about the economics of what to do with Twitter. I That is the only thing from Elon I absolutely believe. I don't think he has any clue. I don't think he's given this any thought at all. What are we supposed to do with this business? Which... Has seen a depreciation in its share price but twitter you know occasionally does make money um i don't think he's got any clue how he would try to make twitter more profitable uh, there's going to be enormous debt financing here and i don't think that the finances are going to be there to pull it off never mind that that's twitter will have enormous debt loads elon is going to have enormous debt loads he's going to have all of his tesla shares as collateral which Tesla, by the way, their shareholders hate this deal. Um, They're all, you
3: know,
1: they're they're going to be leveraged up to the hilt. This all came out, the original bid, before the stock market basically went into the tank for the last six weeks. So we have a big mess. Um, We also have news that the SEC is investigating uh, Elon Musk for misleading disclosures about the um, number of Twitter shares he was acquiring. Uh, Which then would have led him to acquire even more shares before he told people that he was acquiring his way into the company. We could go on all day long. Uh, We haven't even touched on the significant ethics, compliance, corporate culture, and social values issues that would arise with Elon owning Twitter. Uh, He had said recently that he thinks any speech that is legal should be permitted. What he's really trying to evoke there is the age old question we have talked about many times is something legal but not ethical is that still okay clearly elon thinks so long as it's legal it doesn't have to be ethical and that's okay going to be a whole lot of racist nonsense misleading garbage that you could still have on twitter in his world then and who wants to see that i don't know um so you could go on and on and on. And I feel really bad for the Twitter employees who are suffering enormous angst over Elon. We have no idea what's going to happen. And that's, that's all there is to say as of today. And who knows? We could have something else happen before we're even done talking about it.
2: Jay, we were talking beforehand about the either departure of two key uh, Twitter executives, their resignation to pursue other opportunities or termination this point it's not clear did that indicate to you and and a hiring freeze at twitter as well and some other cost cutting matters did that indicate to you that musk already has his thumb on twitter
0: it sounds like he's pulling if it doesn't have his thumb there he's pulling the strings i mean there usually is a period uh until the merger actually occurs before he can start making policies so uh It seems rather strange that this information is coming out right now. So
2: we had uh, a deal that has gone south in terms of the finances. Matt, you pointed out uh, correctly that Musk has leveraged himself to the hilt, uh, overlaid with the stock market deciding now is the time to tank, which is driving down the price of Tesla stocks even more uh, than simply Musk's Uh, taking his attention away from his primary company and pissing off the Tesla shareholders. uh, Does that, uh, if the Tesla stock dropped significantly, does that put him at risk of being called on any of these loans that he's taken out to buy Twitter?
1: So yes, it does. Um, If I think that when the deal was announced, the figure was that if Tesla depreciated by about 40%, The loan would then be called. Uh, Now, what is interesting to me is that since the deal, since this, whatever it is that he announced this morning, that the deal is suspended, but he's still committed to it. um, Since that news came out, what has happened? Well, the market interpreted this as the deal's not going to happen at all. So Tesla shares went back up in value and Twitter shares went down. Well... That actually means Elon now has more net worth to buy a company that has a depressed share price. Could this be a market manipulation play, which I would not put it past Elon to do this because frankly, I think he's already under investigation for this already, not for this deal, but for things before his 420 funding approved tweets from a couple of years ago with Tesla. He has tweeted often about the price of Bitcoin, uh, which he is a major holder of, which also has been tanking the last couple of weeks now. So across all of his big major holdings, Tesla, Bitcoin, Twitter, and whatever else he might hold privately that we don't know, all of those values are going down. And now he's announced this thing, whatever it is, that I'm not going to do it, but yes, I'm committed to it. And suddenly the pricing starts moving back in a favorable direction for him where he could renegotiate to get Twitter at a lower price while he's got more valuable collateral to put up for a loan all because of two tweets that he sent out because he's one of the most followed people on Twitter. There's no way the sec is not wondering, is this market manipulation or not? I would not be surprised if the justice department is looking, is this market manipulation or not? Everything about this deal stinks. Or it communicates that Elon doesn't really know what he wants to do with Twitter, probably didn't understand exactly what he was getting into when he had to buy it, and now realizes Twitter is still a basket case with no clear strategic path to growth. And, and I'd like, like I said, we could talk about this for hours because I don't think anybody has any clue what's going on, including Elon Musk. So what did you think about his
2: excuse for putting this on hold, the alleged... Uh, 5% threshold of either fake accounts or bots or something else that wasn't real and wasn't potentially generating revenue for Twitter.
1: Well, it's interesting that clearly he's going to say that Twitter and I have to figure out, well, or how well is it? 5% bots? Is it 50%? Is it 10%? I, I would suspect that Twitter doesn't know. I, and there are people already who are saying on Twitter that this is not something that can be confirmed ever because AI has become so sophisticated that there are plenty of disinformation specialists or commercial interests that are using AI bots so sophisticatedly that you can't distinguish, is this an actual person or a bot? And so Twitter would, and possibly, Elon is trying to get Twitter to prove something that cannot be proved, which lets him say, I'm out you can't meet my demands. And I don't have to pay your billion dollar breakup fee. The only people who are benefiting from this nonsense going on with Twitter are going to be plaintiff lawyers and securities law professors who will be able to teach a whole course on Elon Musk in the fullness of time. Um, And I, I think that that is probably what he is doing is he's looking for an out to have it, to be able to exercise it. And I suspect that he's going to try and pull it. That, but like I said, we don't know.
0: So Matt, do you really believe that he never intended to purchase the asset? And this is, you know, the aftermath with all the hubris, but is, is this a self-fulfilling prophecy or is he just going south? He, he seems like he's a man in
1: love with his own ego who wanted to be able to try to buy it if he wanted or to be able to just mess with the market and everybody's minds for a while and then get away scot-free. And now he's finding that actually maybe he can't do that. That's my suspicion. But you know, look, I, I don't know Elon Musk. He doesn't follow me on Twitter. I don't follow him. I do think that some of the tweets that he has sent out in the past show that this guy has some serious issues. Um so we we like we really don't know, but you can't ignore the fact that there are actual people who depend on Twitter for commercial interests They work at Twitter and they're being whipshod back and forth and they've got no sense of what he's doing, what he would want to do. And some of the things he has said, particularly around letting some nut job like Donald Trump back on the largest social
4: media
2: So it looks like Matt might be having a technical difficulty. Jay, you've gone through mergers uh, when you were in the corporate world. What really happens when either your company uh, becomes a target or uh, becomes the acquired um, in that interim period? And how does that kind of affect the
0: psyche of employees? Great question, Tom. Normally, there's what is known as the honeymoon phase, where everybody comes in and sings Kumbaya. And then very quickly, if your company's been acquired by private equity or uh, a larger rival, they start to really dig into seeing what's there. And they start, if I was in a sales position, they decided to tell me that my compensation package was going to change. Many of the customers that I uh, had as my own and that I generated revenue from were taken away from me. And very quickly, they wanted to do more with less. And I found that that was not putting me in a position to satisfy my customers in the way they needed to be taken care of in a professional manner. So that led me to think about when bonuses were going to be paid, whether or not I wanted to stick around. And that set in uh you know in flurry a whole match of the decisions that i needed to make and that uh, merger was announced in july and i was out of there by the final uh several months later i think in february so in less than six months there was a big change in their workforce so that's a lot what's going on so you're talking about the people at twitter now they don't know what to do they are getting whipsawed back and forth are we getting acquired are we not getting acquired so it's, it's really a position where um, they try to sort all this stuff out so when the merger closes that they know which teams are staying and which people are moving off onto greener pastures. So that's my experience on the merger.
2: Matt, what do you, where do you think Twitter goes from here when this all falls through? Do they get their billion dollars? Do they continue cost-cutting? Do they revamp operations? Or do they try to return to where they were?
1: I... Nobody knows uh, I suspect that even for the richest man in the world, he probably does not want to part with the billion dollar breakup fee and he's going to look for some way to not pay it if he walks away from the deal. So that's where I went back to the one, one of the two groups who will benefit here are plaintiff lawyers cause there's going to be lawsuits over this. There already are. Um, and then strategically, what does Twitter do after this? Who knows? because already the CEO just ousted two of his top product development lieutenants yesterday. Jay is entirely right that a lot of people, when a merger comes through, they get spooked, they leave. Uh, Some people probably already are doing this at Twitter and there's going to be this hollowing out of the human talent. And we all know how this works is that the best people leave first because they can. And if you're a company on the downswing, it becomes a self-fulfilling fulfilling downward spiral and you wind up with the worst because they can't get another job. And I hope that's not what happens to Twitter, but it's, it's going to be an enormously stressful period for this company now.
2: Well, I think um, we will get to revisit this again, but uh, breaking news for our 100th anniversary show. Uh, For our topic for the show, I wanted us to explore the different ways that business has changed because of uh, the pandemic and really the events leading up to the Russian invasion, which seemed to coalesce many changes that have been going on the last couple of years. So, Matt, I know you have written about uh, changes that uh, either you've seen or or heard, heard or reported about in the supply chain. Why don't you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, this, uh, this idea came to me after I had attended an online webinar at the Ethics and Compliance Initiative, where uh, they had a great panel of two speakers who were talking about uh, sanctions compliance stemming from Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how the, the role that compliance officers play there and how it will eventually have real important implications for supply chain risks and cybersecurity generally. Um, So Leo McKay, who is the head of ethics and compliance at Lockheed, and he serves on the board of a few other companies here and there, um, you know, he brought up the great point that because sanctions compliance is happening so quickly now with Russia, where literally you have to check the sanctions list to see who is now sanctioned Russia today. You have to do that pretty much every day. Um, That is changing so rapidly. Compliance has to be heavily involved in that. Um, But that is the first order effect of Russia's invasion on a lot of corporate operations. Suddenly you find, well, we can't do business with this person here. We can't sell our goods to this person uh, or we can't buy goods from this uh, person, this supplier. A great example would be titanium, which is now sanctioned in the United States. And uh, titanium is a crucial uh, component for airline manufacture. So if you are, say, Boeing or Airbus or Embraer or several others, you'd have to think through how are we going to source titanium elsewhere because it is now a sanctioned, the sources I would normally use are now sanctioned. And that was Leo McKay's point, is that compliance is the first order effect, but the company is going to have these second order effects that suddenly our supply chain or our customer chain is going to come under strain and key suppliers might get knocked out. Standard customers might suddenly get, uh, you know, they're unavailable because of sanctions. So compliance officers would then need to help the rest of the business think through the second order effects on your upstream and downstream operations. Um, It is an interesting point. It's an interesting challenge for compliance officers because you could, if you're looking to move up in the enterprise, it gives you much more uh, proximity to real operations instead of just being thinking about what's legal, what's compliance, what's ethical. Now it's more like, where do we get this stuff that we can't get to? Where are we gonna sell it now that we can't sell it to Russian interests? Um, you know, there are a couple of key capabilities that become more important when you start thinking this through. Certainly due diligence is still going to be crucial because that's where all of this starts. It is the first order effect who's sanctioned, who's not Uh, screening capabilities, because you'll have to think through how can we actually screen who our customers are, especially if it is in Russia, which does not use the Roman alphabet like we do in English. So you're going to have some pretty sophisticated screening technology that can work in multiple languages, Um, contract management. Are we making sure that our suppliers we can use are not also working with their suppliers? Are they sanctioned? Do we have fourth party risks that we have to think through? Because if we do, we're going to have to game that out, which is the next capability. You're going to have to work with maybe your procurement team or your sales team or your operations team. How could we do scenario planning? These key suppliers here are suddenly gone. How can we replace them that quickly? These other customers over here, I can tell you right now, salespeople, they're going to sanction them by the end of next week. You can't count on them for your revenue projections. Um, And then something even as mundane as inventory control, which is probably more like the procurement function, but you'd have to warn them. We're not going to have these supplies anymore. How many of them do we have right now? Because we need these many widgets for 90 days while we go and search for a substitute, because our primary supplier has been sanctioned so that's five capabilities i just outlined there the first three due diligence screening capabilities contract management for your third parties that's very much in the compliance functions wheelhouse that is what you do for anti-corruption for a long time and that was leo mckay from lockheed that was his big point is how can you leverage your anti-corruption experience and capabilities into helping the rest of the business with supply chain risks that they're going to have to think through. Um, It's gonna be difficult, not anywhere near fully understood and done because we have no idea when this war is going to end. We have no idea how many more people are gonna be sanctioned. But it is an interesting challenge that can give compliance officers a lot of more profile and exposure to the rest of the business. So Jay Rosen, um,
2: what do you see in terms of business relationships or sort of a broader mix of how companies would think about teaming up, pairing up, or going into sensitive geopolitical areas?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, Tom. Only a few months ago, international trade experts were hopeful that the worst of the pandemic supply chain issues were over and that some stability could be restored to the international trade system. Following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, however, the dominoes of supply chain havoc began tumbling once again, and this time they became intertwined with issues involving national security, political alliances, energy sustainability, climate change, nationalism, inflation, and the limits of globalization. In addition to disrupting energy markets and supply chains for everything from wheat and fertilizer to semiconductors and auto parts, sanctions against Russia have brought a new sense of urgency to energy security and geopolitics, and have once again focused the attention of the corporate leaders on issues of supply chain risk, as Matt just spoke about. China's alliance with Russia is a looming concern for many manufacturers, of course, as is the staunch refusal of most nations in Africa, Asia, and Latin America to participate in NATO's efforts to confront Russian aggression with economic sanctions. When it comes to trade policy, however, national security appears to be taking precedence over the pursuit of a level international playing field, at least in Western Europe. This is, fun, this is raising fundamental questions about the nature of globalization which is leading to conversations about how trade can or cannot or should or should not be a means to pursue national security. Not everything is gloom and doom in the world of international trade, fortunately. The war in Ukraine has clarified the need for more supply chain cooperation between nations, and the United States and the United Kingdom have begun a series of discussions on the future of Atlantic trade. This is following last year's announcement by President Biden and UK Prime Minister Johnson of a new Atlantic Charter. The talks between the US and the UK were intended to shore up relationships among two countries in Europe, as well as reinforce an overall commitment to building more durable supply chains, protecting workers' rights, and continue building the framework and infrastructure needed to support effective digital trade practices. In the private sector, however, there is a great deal of concern about the successive waves of inter- uncertainty caused by the last few years by trade wars, the pandemic, the Suez Canal crisis, Brexit, climate change, and now the fallout from the war. Many senior executives are seriously overwhelmed by the uncertainty of the moment and are looking for a way forward. With any one of these events, you could tell corporate executives that it's a one-off, And that normal service will be restored soon. But after so many of these, boards are now going to be asking what shoe is going to drop next and where is the assurance that certainty of operation of global supply chains. This must begin to color how companies organize themselves regionally and globally. Some companies are already decoupling from China, restructuring supply chains, and in some cases, moving their manufacturing facilities closer to home. Here's a sobering consideration. Any positive impact of the war in Ukraine on transatlantic relationship could be lost as a result of the U.S. presidential elections in 2024 or maybe even destabilized to a degree by the 2022 midterms. A serious economic downturn due to the effects of the war could increase the probability of a second win, I hate saying this, for Donald Trump or for the election of another president sharing his nationalist, unilateralist, and EU and NATO critical views. For Europe, this means that the reaffirmation of the United States' crucial security role in the continent cannot be totally guaranteed beyond the next two and a half years. At the same time, it cannot be ruled out that the war in Ukraine will still be ongoing in some form beyond 2024, and may have lost some of its crisis urgency in Washington and European capitals. This means that however improved the transatlantic relationship is today as a result of the war, this coming period will also be marked by nagging European concern about the return of Trump or Trumpism to the White House. Tom.
2: What I want to take a look at is what I see is some of the changes in not necessarily enforcement, but really elevating enforcement almost to a national security interest. And uh, Mike Volkoff has written about this. And the point he made was this did not start with the Russian invasion of Ukraine or even where I'm going to start it. It really started a couple of years ago. Uh literally under uh, the Trump administration with the increase in sanctions and export controls. But it's been an ongoing process, but the Ukrainian war has really coalesced this in a couple of different ways. So I'm gonna start with uh, last November when the Biden administration issued their statement on countering corruption. And this was in many ways, um, well, first of all, it raised corruption to a national security issue. So that got the attention of every compliance practitioner, at least in the anti-corruption space. M- much of what the policy uh, and strategy centered on was internal government resources, internal government focus, uh, The some of the departments that use a lot of uh, outside contractors, such as the Department of Defense, that are particularly sen- sensitive. But there was also an elevation of Uh, private companies, and uh, meaning U.S. public companies and those that are privately owned, but non-governmental actors in the United States, an elevation of the importance of compliance and elevation of the scrutiny of compliance and really bringing compliance to the fore. But then we had the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, conveniently just after the Beijing Olympics ended. And we had a couple of different uh, announcements since that time, that have elevated not simply anti-bribery and anti-corruption compliance, but also other types of compliance. So we had uh, the Department of Treasury FinCEN in, issue an advisory on kleptocracy and foreign public corruption. We've had Lisa Monaco talk about sanctions enforcement as the new FCPA. And of course, we've had the National Security Division at the Department of Justice emphasize uh, their aggressive enforcement of export control sanctions. All of these have ramped up since the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. And what's interesting is uh, the three of us have been uh, either in or around anti-corruption compliance now for, I think, 15 years, as Matt is probably the oldest or longest uh, tenured of us. And the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission have worked out a, you know, a pretty workable model of enforcement in terms of uh, putting incentives in place for self-disclosure, having internal investigations done by companies, and those results turned over to the DOJ and SEC, uh, penalties assessed, and uh, either uh, typically a deferred prosecution agreement or other settlement agreement put in place. Well, that same model now could be used in a variety of other ways. So, for instance, for export control sanctions, you have the Department of Justice. I mentioned the uh, National Security Division at the Department of Justice, but also the Department of Treasury now uh, will be involved in BIS. It's leads on export controls. Uh, Another Treasury Department, FinCEN, really leads the AML effort going forward. Uh, But they will also be working closely with the Department of Justice uh, as well. And and one other interesting um, development that I'm not sure many people really saw is if you go back to the uh, seminal AML law of 2020, which was the first major change in U.S. uh, anti-money laundering laws literally since the Patriot Act after uh, uh, 9-11, there was a whistleblower provision in there. And I'm sure Matt and I both commented on that at the time. Uh, Jay, you might have as well. Uh, But that whistleblower provision now comes into play around Russian oligarchs, uh, their assets and the kleptocracy initiative. Because if you can help secure one of those uh, 500 million to $1.5 billion yachts, can you say 30% of that? Well, if you can, that's a lot of money. And so there are people who are actively looking for those yachts and communicating that uh, not simply directly to the government, but also to law firms who are involved in providing that information of whistleblowers to the government. The SEC's Office of the Whistleblower works closely with a cadre of former SEC officials and others who are in private practice now in their whistleblower program. Once again, that model has now uh, been put in place around uh, this hunt for assets of Russian oligarchs and other kleptocrats. So we have incentivized, uh, in many ways, this now national security fight. And they um, are law firms that are actively pursuing these. And if they get information, reputable information, they can pass that along to the appropriate government agencies. And then a seizure is made. And that whatever that asset is, whether it's a yacht, whether it's an apartment, whether it's a, the house of an Armenian kleptocrat in greater Los Angeles that just uh, got seized, well, uh, some of that money could go to the, the whistleblower or reporter under the AML law of 2020, which was not available to them previously. So I really see uh, we've hit a true uh, watershed mark around the types of compliance that the three of us and many others have talked about for multiple years and an elevation of this uh, going forward. Um, It's uh, certainly exciting. And uh, Mike Volkoff, as I began this segment, he has written that uh, the the new times are here. And even Lisa Monaco said, that uh, sanctions enforcement is the new FCPA. So all of this is going to make compliance much more important, and individual compliance professionals uh, will have a greater responsibility, if not roles in their corporations, because the visibility of this has risen uh, at the t- to the top of uh, the U.S. government. So uh, that was really the area I wanted to explore uh, on this. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back with Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, shout
0: outs and rants. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check.
1: Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power
0: to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Jonathan Armstrong sitting across the pond
2: closer to the conflict. What has been on your mind?
3: Obviously, we'll mark the fact that it's our... 100th podcast and I wish on the 100th podcast we weren't talking about war and I think we perhaps uh, hoped not to be talking about war when we embarked on this journey 100 podcasts ago but I wanted to talk about the war in the Ukraine and its uh, effects on businesses in the US and the UK and the EU and I can't start without saying that, of course, our thoughts and prayers are with the Ukrainian people. I've had the privilege of helping the Ukrainian Bar Association with some things, and I was in Spain with their delegation last week, and they're maintaining immense dignity under pressure. Now, as far as the war has gone, then obviously we've had a lot of activity On sanctions. And I know we've talked about this on this podcast before. But the cyber war is still real and in effect. But I think, in some respects, the doomsday scenarios that we heard have not happened yet. I was at the uh, advising conference yesterday, the sort of big um, uh, breach conference in uh, in the UK and i think everybody's sense test is almost like it's not as bad as we had feared particularly when it comes to attacks on critical national infrastructure on financial services markets etc etc now there's no room for complacency but that hasn't happened yet what has happened though i think is chaos on both sides it's fair to say that ukrainian residents had been involved in cyber attacks including ransomware attacks prior to the conflict and you'd almost think it's um even stevens maybe ukraine is slightly ahead in terms of the cyber war first of all ukraine has managed to defend. Much of it's uh, critical national infrastructure. There have been incidents. There have been uh, Ukrainian systems down. But um, we have seen that there have been attacks uh, on Russia from those taking the Ukrainian side. There's a loose collective called uh, Anonymous, for example, that people associated with that have taken down the Russian media regulator uh, uh, which of the filings from that agency to the FSB the uh, uh, Russian uh, KGB successor if you like. That may or may not have had an impact on some Western organisations too depending on the nature of those reports. We've seen an attack on the Russian broadcaster VGT which exposed 20 emails we've seen exposing details of russian army command systems we've seen interference with tv broadcasts and seen somebody semi-comically try and alter the uh, routing data related to a yacht which uh, is reportedly associated with president putin now like in any conflict there have been uh, Collateral damage in Russia as well. Many Russian citizens have had their details exposed. The volume of leaked Russian email addresses at one report doubled in March. And for context, that was five times more than in January. Now, it hasn't all been one-sided. There have been attacks on the Ukraine. According to Microsoft, there are about 40 attacks against Ukrainian assets as at the end of April. Those attacks have included phishing, misinformation, data theft, statistical systems, and a number of sectors have been hit, including nuclear, uh, energy, media, logistics, and agriculture. But one of the most relevant things, I think, to our all is the collateral damage on the West. We have had a number of our clients have been attacked and the main damage I think is ransom. Now whether you believe it or not Putin uh, reportedly was trying to get um, uh, some of the ransomware gangs under control there has been put for Putin by one gang called Conti although that gang seemingly also included Ukrainian uh, uh, individuals who uh, have said that they didn't sign up uh, to that. And we've also seen a sort of reconfiguring of some of the uh, Russian associated gangs like Revil. It's definitely a rise of, in, in ransomware at the moment, whether that's openly them supporting Putin, whether it's being the umbrella of chaos to uh Have more attacks. It's just business as usual for ransomware gangs. We're definitely still seeing that, and we're seeing that on what you might call non-conventional targets. So it's not just banks; it's manufacturing businesses, it's uh, structure-related businesses, and so on. And ransomware, of course, can be as damaging as any other cyber attack, particularly if auctions haven't patched their systems properly and particularly if their response mechanisms aren't good, so they're not good at detecting uh, um, attacks. But ransomware has been with us for 18 months. It's definitely uh, increased in its proliferation in uh, recent months, uh, uh, unrelated, I think, to the war. But what does make things different is the hardening of the insurance market. Ransomware is typically something that corporations have tried to insure against in recent years. The market has contracted at the same time as these attacks and at the same time as we've had debates about war exclusion clauses. So there's been quite a bit of litigation in the US over previous ransomware attacks where they've Uh, emerged from conflict with insurers saying well this is an act of war not a sort of regular ransomware attack and of course attribution finding out who's caused the attack is always really difficult because surprise surprise threat actors don't leave business cards or if they do they don't leave them with their real names on it they mask the ip address so for example Attacks can be associated with North Korea, even though North Korea doesn't have that many IP addresses and a lot of attacks don't originate from North Korea. And it's the same with Russia. Just because an email address isn't a Russian IP address doesn't mean to say that there isn't Russian involvement in the attack. So the insurance industry is trying to get to the bottom of this whole attribution thing who is responsible and there's undoubtedly going to be a lot of litigation over this particularly for those corporations that have been caught up in ransomware uh, in in times of conflict but I think the simple message for all organizations is be on your guard adopt procedures to defend against this that might be making sure that the tech guys are up to patching that might be rehearsing your data breach procedures that might be board awareness sessions so you've talked through what to do if you intend to pay a ransom know that you're probably stepping against the tide most corporations are resisting ransoms you're going to have extra difficulties paying a ransom at the moment because of the sanctions regime toughening because of the action that governments are taking against uh, cybersecurity exchanges that are often used to move the money from the legitimate corporation to the threat actor. And also don't rely on insurance. Even if you have a policy, premiums are going up on renewal. And even if you have a policy that you can afford, the war exclusion clause might mean that the insurer won't pay out. So um, like any war there are consequences, not just to those directly involved in the conflict. And here, the cyber war has a potential for real collateral damage.
2: Jonathan, have you seen any court decisions yet on this war exclusion clause? Because at this point we're still in an undeclared war as, as counterintuitive or inane as that might seem.
3: Yeah, I don't think there's any litigation that I have heard of yet. There are still cases in the US, you know, from previous conflicts. And I think the last I heard is, again, roughly even Stevens. I think one court has said yay, one court has said nay. But um, insurers had beefed up the clauses uh, prior to this conflict commencing. So the Lloyd Standard clauses, for example, had been revised. So even prior litigation is no real guide because the clauses in the main look different. I think almost certainly litigation will follow this episode, though, and we know that a large number of organisations have been hit in in, in the chaos. As I said, the attribution thing is always going to be challenging. It's relatively easy for good technical specialists to give you a probability that a certain gang was behind a certain type of attack because the the, the code used to encrypt is a little bit like a uh, a fingerprint. So maybe they can say probability. Very few people and in very few attacks can we say certainty.
2: Jonathan, one of the interesting side effects I have seen from sanctions against Russian individuals and corporations has been companies more reluctant to pay ransomware um, because they cannot identify who the ultimate end receiver is. And if they can't identify the ultimate end receiver, a payment of a ransomware um, uh, extortion after an attack uh, could violate U.S. sanctions. Are you hearing or seeing anything from that angle?
3: Yeah, absolutely. The number of people paying ransoms has declined. I know I did a rough straw poll uh, amongst people I know. Uh, there's maybe 35% of, of cases maybe where ransoms are paid. We've not uh, w- a personally much lower percentage uh, from a- a- our clients. A- and I think there is that recognition. That you know it ties in with things like ESG. If you're saying you want to be a good corporate citizen, being a good corporate citizen probably doesn't include making criminals rich. Um, and so there's already been, I think, a, a moral judgment in many cases against paying ransoms, and you're absolutely right that the sanctions regime tightening has made it more difficult. You know, sanctions against cyber criminals aren't necessarily. New, we've had them for maybe four or five years, uh, but they're definitely increasing in severity. And um, And the sanctions against middlemen, if you like, just makes it even more challenging as well because the whole cyber currency world, because of its interconnection, you not only don't know who the end recipient is of the money, You don't know where they bank, and many banks are sanctioned. But you also don't know the exchange that they're using to turn, you know, your clean money through dirtiness and cleaned out the other side. So it's definitely a risky business if you do intend to pay ransoms.
2: Jonathan Marks, what changes uh, from the Russian invasion of Ukraine did you see in the area of ESG?
4: That's a great question, Tom, and I think before we unpack that, let's try to take a little bit of a step back here and, 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 and talk about, you know, how ESG came about, you know, how an environmental, social and governance really did come about. And It could be traced back to, I think, 2004, where UN Secretary Kofi Annan wrote over to over 50 CEOs of major financial institutions, inviting them to participate in what I, I think it was um, an initiative under the auspices of the UN Global Impact and the support of the International Finance Corporation and the Swiss government. And, and then shortly after that, there was a study that was done that was entitled Who Cares Wins uh, with, I can't say his last name, or but I think it's Knofel as was the author. And the report made the case that embedding environmental and social and governance factors in capital markets make good, makes good business sense, and leads to more sustainable markets. And so, you know, taking into what's happened with the Russian invasion, let's, again, let's unpack this a little more, and talk about, you know, the environment, social aspects of this, and the governance aspect of all this. So, you know, obviously, the Russian invasion, you know, does disrupt supply chain, right? And so we want to make sure that from a supply chain perspective, when you're going out and you're replacing some of those suppliers, that you're doing so in a a conscious manner and you're not just, you know, engaging with vendors or suppliers that have problems or could be perceived to have problems. I think a lot of companies work pretty hard in making sure that their suppliers were ethical and honest folks, Uh, at least some have or most have. And I, I think that's an opportunity there for You know, organizations to kind of deviate to the left a little bit because they're they're really looking to replace what was lost, especially, you know, things that were done in the Ukraine or um, things that were potentially done in Russia. So, I mean, that's supply chain to me is probably one of the bigger things there, but also, you know, bribery and corruption also plays big with that as well you know with regards to the russian invasion into the ukraine and with the war that's going on it's not like we're not focusing on fcpa and bribery and corruption issues now but again because you have certain things that are cut off uh, for example suppliers or, or talent or you know uh, you know other types of things it's it's very easy to get in a position it's very easy to get in a position where you know bribing you know paying a bribe you know, in order to get something done um, or to, you know, to win some business, you know, might be a little bit easier or at least, you know, in some people's minds justifiable, you know, with regards to what kind of what's going on. So, you know, I look at those types of things and immediately I I go to, you know, ESG, you know, um, also, you know, again, um, you know, I I, I look at um, if we're talking about ESG, I look at, uh, you know, some of the, some of the board diversities and structures that are around today um, and you know, how, how they might impact all of this going forward. Is there a greater push right now at the board level to have um, a better structure as a result of all this? Do the board members really understand the risks associated with this from an overall governance perspective, from an enterprise-wide perspective? Do they really even understand what governance is? Um, And most of you, it's much like the question that I was asked, can you define an internal control? I think a lot of board members would be very, um, it would would be tough for them to answer the question if I asked them to define corporate governance, what that actually means. And so, you know, again, you know, having the right people on the board, you know, certainly does matter. And we, you know, we saw that, you know, we keep seeing, you know, glimpses of this through Things that are manifesting themselves outside of sort of ESG and making sure that you do have the right board members on place. I think um, one of the one of the issues that we talked about last week, Cycle, You know, not only did they remediate their compliance program or try to enhance their overall compliance program, but they, one of the other things that they did was they actually replaced board members and senior management. So, um, you know, as a result of that that particular issue that that we were talking about last week with regards to you know the bribery that occurred or allegedly occurred, but um, you know overall ESG, you know, you know, environmental things and and social things and and you know all things governance. You know, I think it's a great question, but more importantly, if you take a look at all of this, and I mentioned a couple of things here, I think the other thing that we really need to go back on is that um, people that are claiming to have these programs in place you know, are they, are they really working? Um, you know, I see more and more companies making pretty bold statements. And so, you know, the question really is, is that are those things, are those metrics really holding true? So, you know, um, from an ESG perspective and what that really boils down to is risk and understanding overall risk and what the risk is of the organization, you know, and are we focused in on those particular risks? Um, and, and are those risks really, um, being dealt with and um, something that, you know, sort of, sort of in parallel to all that, you know, identifying those risks and making sure that all these things are managed um, today from an ESG perspective, um, all those other things, you know, all the other things that are, are associated with that is, you know, who's managing all of this, um, you know, it, it shouldn't really solely rest with compliance, but in some organizations it's stuck it, it is, it is, it is buried in there. So, you know, I, I think it's a great question. I don't have all the answers here from an ESG perspective, but if I'm an organization and, and like I said, if my supply chain is disrupted or there's any other types of disruption in my business, I would want to map those to those particular risks and those risks to my overall ESG program, you know, looking at it from, you know, the environment perspective, environmental, the social and the governance perspective. And, you know, if there are things that need to be tweaked or modified, they should definitely be tweaked or modified, especially when it, came, when it comes to making specific disclosures if you're a publicly traded company.
2: Jonathan, I'd like to focus on the G part, because now, literally over the past two years, we've had a worldwide pandemic. We had an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, and now we have uh, Europe's first land war in over 70 years. Uh, what we used to call black swan events just seem to be events now. Could this also be used as a reason to to have a discussion about the board and board governance and board oversight, not in a tactical sense um, with some of the strategies you've described, but really get a board to understand they need to start considering risk on a much broader and strategic level, at least how to assess and respond to it?
4: Yeah, there was a study that I read by the NACD, an oversight survey study. Tom, it's a, it's a great point. Um, and I think it said um, more than was it more than three quarters of directors indicated that over in, in the last two years, ESG discussions have appeared more frequently on their board agendas, which is interesting, right? Um, and these discussions often take place at full board level. Right. Um, you know, most of them take place at the full board member level. There is also discussions from some organizations in the gov- the actual governance committee or at a committee that was completely and totally dedicated to ESG issues. So, you know, um, I think from a, when we start to talk about board oversight and monitoring and things of that nature, I think it really does kind of tweak it just a little bit more. And, and again, it puts the emphasis back on the board who has really the overall fiduciary responsibility to make sure that the risk program is in place and is functioning and that they're monitoring that on a regular and ongoing basis. We've seen that. So, you know, I, again, if, if ESG is, imbe- if you have an ESG program and that's embedded within in your organization um, and you've made certain commitments and you've made certain statements, I think it's one of those areas where the board now has to take a, a, a more holistic view and, and a different look at what we've committed to and where we're going to and make sure that they're realistic. There's nothing wrong with changing your approach or, your, or something as a result of an event or, you know, like we talked about Black, You talked about Black Swan events. You know, that's fine. I think the more important thing going forward is making sure that these programs are properly monitored And people don't have false expectations with regards to the organization, because if you remember what I said before, the way this all started was it all started with, you know, Kofi Annan talking about um, investing in organizations that have these strategies and these initiatives in place because they felt that these strategies and initiatives, you know, really were something that that were meaningful and and those organizations were more sustainable, not only currently, but in the future.
2: And now we move on to fan favorites, shout outs and rants. Matt Kelly, you got a shout out or rant for us today? Thank you.
1: Uh, I have a rant about the bizarre story that has come out of vaccine maker extraordinaire Moderna. Uh, So for those of you who may not have yet heard, on Monday, May 9th, uh, Moderna's new CFO, Jorge Gomez, started on the job. On Tuesday, May 10th, Mr. Gomez's previous employer, Denspley Sirona, announced in an SEC filing that it had opened an accounting probe into financial irregularities at the company uh, involving some senior members of the uh, finance administration at Denspley. They did not specifically say the CFO at Moderna, Mr. Gomez, but they did say that current and former senior executives were suspected of manipulating um credit sales and incentives at the company to uh, fabricate some results or boost sales, do earnings manipulation, and so they could hit personal sales compensation targets and compensation goals. So that came out Tuesday, one day after Mr. Gomez started at Moderna. And so that afternoon, Moderna fired Mr. Gomez. So he was on the job as the CFO of Moderna for one day, and then got fired when his previous employer announced in an SEC filing that it had opened an accounting probe and couldn't file its 10Q on time. That is the most wackadoo set of circumstances I thought I could ever hear, until I looked up Moderna's disclosure about firing Mr. Gomez, where they said that for his one day on the job, he would now be paid a full year's salary of $700,000, plus a full year of COBRA health insurance coverage, which I'm going to guess is at least $10,000 because when I've been on COBRA before, it has been at least two grand a month. So I will charitably say he has made over $700,000 from Moderna for working one day. uh, And now he is implicated in financial improprieties at another public company. Um, I can't begin to calculate (laughs) just how messy this is. And even more... Uh, At some point, we'll have to get Karen Woody to describe the insider trading reg FD complexities here, because I'm not sure that if Moderna called Denspley up to do a reference check, I don't think Denspley would actually be able to disclose to them that, well, we have an accounting probe and maybe Gomez is implicated. Because if they did, that's material, non-public information, and you are selectively disclosing it. So you've violated Reg FD. If you tell somebody, oh, yeah, well, you know, the CFO, you're looking to hire. He's involved in accounting fraud, we think. Maybe you shouldn't. I don't think Denspley actually had the legal right to say it. And how could we get out of this problem? I don't know. Would that come up in a background check? Would you do a more thorough due diligence analysis? Would that find it out? Because Denspley hadn't disclosed it yet. They only put it in the non-timely filing with their quarterly report so it's a fascinating mess but certainly seven hundred thousand dollars for one day of work when you are now under a cloud of potentially being involved in accounting fraud how does that work how does that work in the united states who on earth thinks that is an appropriate resolution here i don't know but um all sorts of points to ponder about good hiring practices thorough vetting of senior executives, clawback policies that you might include in an employment contract, but what a mess for a company that actually does, has saved the world with a fantastic vaccine product, but here we are.
2: Jay Rosen, do you have a shout out or rant for us?
0: I have something that's a bit more positive than Matt's story. I have a shout out to Christopher Flores and Robert Morgan. You may ask, who are these two gentlemen? And I'll tell you, a passenger without any flying experience safely landed a private plane on Tuesday at a Florida airport after the pilot had a medical issue. At noon, about an hour into the flight, the pilot said he wasn't feeling well and slumped against the controls. The plane immediately went into a nosedive and sharp turn, forcing one of the passengers to take over the flight and stabilize the plane. The passenger said, I've got a serious situation here. And my pilot has gone incoherent, and I have no idea to fly the plane. During a nearly 10-minute exchange, the aircraft traffic controller, Christopher Flores, guided the passenger, then about 20 miles east of Boca Raton, telling him to hold the wings level and follow the coastline and attempt to slowly descend. Robert Morgan, the second individual, the air traffic controller, who helped the passenger successfully land the plane in Palm Beach, described his experience in an interview with a local TV station. Quote, I knew the plane was flying like any other plane, and I just knew I had to keep him calm, point him to the runway, and tell him how to reduce the power so he could descend and land. So kudos to Mr. Flores and Mr. Morgan for talking the unnamed passenger down. Hey, uh, you might want to know that
1: uh, given your Hollywood experience, this is literally the plot of a movie that is now on Hulu really line or event horizon starring Allison Williams exact same thing uh, but i agree with you 100% but yeah bizarre
2: uh, i am going to rant about the us supreme court and the draft opinion that justice Samolito um wrote that was then leaked and published. And this is uh, obviously the right wing's desire to uh, eviscerate and revoke Roe versus Wade. But what I want people to understand is it does not end there. Because this opinion said that there could not be a right, a constitutional right, or a bill based upon the lack of a constitutional right that did not exist in 1787, which was in the Constitution uh, was put into place. And I want people to understand what that means is if the rights didn't exist then, which means English common law rights because that's what American law is based on. If English common law rights didn't exist at that time for a, some sort of right or privilege, then we can't have it. It's unconstitutional. What does that mean? Well, it means things like the Miranda warning didn't exist right to counsel, didn't exist. Privacy didn't exist. Uh, Interracial marriages, the loving case didn't exist. Um, Rights to have privacy in your bedroom, uh, loving versus, I mean, uh, Griswold versus Connecticut. All of those didn't exist. And any law that's based upon those Uh, or rather any law that was based upon a right that didn't exist, well, that's unconstitutional. What are some of those rights? How about Title VII? How about Title IX? Uh, If you want to take it to its logical extreme, you know, iPhones didn't exist in 1787, nor were they contemplated at the time. So do you have a right to privacy in your iPhone? Not according to Alito. Now, Congress... And the exact Congress has the right to pass laws based upon the Commerce Clause between the several states, but that's an interpretation that came out in the 1930s. So arguably, um, the interpretation that the U.S. Supreme Court used in the 30s to uphold uh, the Wagner Act, which was the right of uh, men and women to organize into labor unions, that's unconstitutional as well because that right didn't exist. And that uh, Commerce Clause interpretation didn't exist when the Constitution came into effect. So for those of you who think uh, we're going back to the handmaiden's tale, we're going back long before that. And it will take America to uh, an era when many of the rights that we think we have don't exist. And... If that's what the right wing wants, this is the opinion that's going to give this to him. Jonathan Marks, do you have a shout out and/or rant for us today?
4: Yeah, I have. Um, I'm a ranter. so um, I'm gonna I'm gonna rant again today, and my rant is um, sadly at Moderna. Um, if you if you are actually have a pulse and you're reading the newspaper, most people will have learned today or yesterday that their newly minted CFO of a a lusty two days was let go. And the reason that that individual was let go was because Moderna found out that there were alleged financial improprieties at his prior organization, um, which apparently did not come up um, in the vetting process. So, you know, the question is, was the individual even vetted? But even more interesting than that was... Um, the, the, the organization that this individual came to prior to Moderna, uh, which, like I said, has an ongoing investigation, um, the, 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 the organization prior to that organization um, had an FCP enforcement action. And the FCP enforcement action, if you read what the vice president of compliance talked about, talked about control gaps and control weaknesses and the like. And we all know that the principal financial officer plays a key role in the control environment and internal controls. So, you know, shame on Moderna. Not only did they miss, you know, they, they missed once, but I think they missed twice. And um, it just begs the question, you know, if, if you know, what what type of, of vetting is actually being done these days in these organizations? So that that's really my rant.
2: Jonathan Armstrong, do you have a shout-out and
3: or rant for us today? I have a shout-out. I was trying to think of something to fit in with the 100 theme. I could, of course, have chosen the 100 fines that have been levied against Boris Johnson and his staff for COVID breaches, but I've picked something more, uh, I think, erudite, I hope, instead. Uh, I won't test our listeners, but is anyone familiar with the names Ivy Williams and Helena Normanton. Well, uh, Ivy and Helena were the first barristers to be admitted to the bar in England and Wales, and that was 100 years ago this week. And I thought we could honor them. Now, of course, there were female lawyers prior to Ivy and Helena's admission. In 1929, there were about 100 solicitors in England and Wales. There had been a barrister admitted in uh, Ireland, which, of course, was um, a, 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 you know, part of the um, United Kingdom at the time. But, but Williams and Normanton, I think, were true trailblazers. Ivy Williams was born in Newton Abbot in Devon, a sort of fairly rural part of the world, And she rose to be a leading academic. She was renowned as a legal scholar in her day. And when her eyesight faded in 1948, she turned her attention to Braille. And she wrote a Braille textbook, which was published by the Royal National Institute for the Blind. Helena Normanton was... uh, Uh, had had a very harrowing life. Her father was a piano maker, and he had died when she was just four years old. Now, of course, in those days, there's no social security, no life insurance. And her mother sounds incredibly entrepreneurial. She moved to Brighton. She opened a grocery store and then a boarding house. And Normanson uh, attended a meeting at a solicitor's office with her mother when she was uh, 11, I think, and decided that that's what she wanted to do to bring more justice to the world and particularly more justice to uh, female uh, litigants in cases. She was involved in cases uh, around divorce and in assaults on women And uh, she was the first woman to conduct trials or a trial in both the UK and, surprisingly, the US. So not only was she a trailblazer for women, but she's also somebody who, it seems, had successfully managed to run a legal practice on both sides of the Atlantic. So my shout-out on the 100 years of their admission is Ivy Williams and Helena Normanton.
2: So, gentlemen, uh, it's been a great 100th anniversary show. I'm not sure we'll ever have uh, any breaking news like we did today, but we do have Elon Musk. So I'm sure we'll have the chance to uh, revisit all of this down the road. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and indeed the first 100 episodes of Everything Compliance. I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce several awards for podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network from the Communicators 2022 Awards. Wynne Hassan won for Hidden Traffic, Karen Woody for Classroom Insiders. The Trial of the Century, the Enron Trial, where I I talked to Lauren Steffi, who covered the trial one, the FCPA Compliance Report, one in business, and my passion project, the Hill Country Podcast, one in two, Lifestyle and Society and Culture. Finally, The Compliance Life won an award in business as well. Understanding Lyme disease, the five-part series on that devastating d- disease, also won in two categories medicine and science and storytelling. So I hope you'll check out some of the other award-winning podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. Everything Compliance is also a winner for a top panel podcast in business as well. Thanks for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again on episode 101.